plus. Yeah, one plus. Thank you. Really, I, I shouldn't complain about the masks here. Wearing them for a 12-hour nursing shift, that's fun. <laughs> but I'm still going to complain. <laughs> yeah. Jared said we're coming out of um, Acts 1.8 about receiving power, but really the title of the series is actually Making Jesus Known. That's really what it's about. You know, it's our, and um, I was sitting there when Jared's talking, I'm like, Jared, stop talking. <laughs> That's enough. Shush, stop talking. Because um, without him realising it, he's actually already crossed into um, part of where um, I feel like God has laid on my heart for me to go this morning with this. Um, I listened to, when I was preparing this, I listened to Jed's word from a couple of weeks ago. And if you haven't heard that, go, go and listen to it. But he's, he talked a lot about the fact that it was the series before we talked about the Holy Spirit and, you know, he kind of being filled with the Spirit and his part, of his li- and his part in our lives. Um, and really, of course, this is the other side of the coin. It's, this is the why <laughs> we need to be thinking about and continuously being filled with the Spirit. It's for a job. It is for a purpose. He talked about Acts, about the fact that it hasn't, the agenda hasn't changed. God's plan hasn't changed. God is not surprised by COVID-19. He is not surprised by 2021. He wasn't caught by surprise by, um, well, it was once, you know, by the fact that we are how many manifestations of windows through or the fact that we've got a thousand different types of iPhones now. He's not surprised by the fact that Spotify and streaming services are making radio just about obsolete. You know, all these things that start to change, God is not surprised. And his plan, however, his plan doesn't change. And sometimes we get mixed up with the fact that because the world changes and the culture changes, that kind of the spiritual rules change. Yeah, no. No. People are still people. God is still God. God is still God. His name is I Am. It's what he says to us. He said, look, I wasn't, I'm not I Am, I Am. Not I was or not I will be, but I Am. He hasn't changed. He still is. His love for us hasn't changed. His purpose for us hasn't changed. His love for his church hasn't changed. His love for the lost hasn't changed. His love for people doesn't change. None of it changes. And we have this privilege of being part of this because of the age and the day that we live in. Anyway, I started to think about this whole thing about sowing and reaping. Thanks, Jen. About sowing and reaping. Or, you know, to use more modern parlance terminology let's call it planting and harvesting sowing and reaping is kind of an old agricultural term and for you know sowing s-o-w you know already we start to good old english you know which word are we talking about planting and harvesting in 1 corinthians 3 the apostle paul is telling off the corinthian church there was lots of things to tell them off about. They were, <laughs> you know what? If you're feeling like a little bit rolly eyes at the the modern day church, go read Corinthians. <laughs> You'll realise they were rotters. <laughs> Whatever they could get wrong, they were getting wrong, right? So you know they weren't they weren't fabulous. 
Um, however, God was doing great things in their midst, and he and also used Paul to write a letter to to them that still helps us today. Anyway, this lot were, were factional. Oh, gee. Nothing like today's church, isn't it? They were factional. <laughs> One lot were like, well, we came up under Paul. And the other lot says, well, we come up under Apollos and we're better than you and our doctrine's better than yours and rada, 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 rada. Something at all familiar? Yeah, maybe. So he starts to tell them off. First Corinthians 3 verse 5 says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord has assigned to each his role. Verse 6, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. He who plants and he who waters are one in purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his own labour, for we are God's fellow workers. And then it goes on from there. And this, I was really thinking about this, about the fact that this analogy of sowing and reaping or planting and harvest actually pops up a lot through Scripture, particularly Old and New Testament. Jesus uses it a lot. It comes up a lot in the epistles, in the Old Testament. It's kind of all over the place. And I was just thinking, of it's also clear, though, I'm not going to talk about the fact that we need to be making Jesus known. It's really clear. Jared's talked about it. I presume Chris talked about it. But this command to go out and impact our world for Jesus, to make him known, to being, a, to being a part of seeing humankind set free, to seeing them set free, to seeing them redeemed, to see the yokes come off, to seeing them healed, to seeing joy come in the place of, of mourning, to see the spirit of heaviness gone. Oh, isn't that a nation and our community in a place where there's a spirit of heaviness? Where honestly, if, if this is—it's not a new thing. It comes up so often. So I'm not convincing you on that. We all know that it's part of the job. It's part of the job description. Not a new thought. All right? So I'm going to assume that you've got that one. We won't continue in particular. I'm not convincing it. It's there. But if we're honest, perhaps we're not quite as great at it as maybe we once were. Or as maybe, and I'm talking about we as in, the individual person, the royal well, and the royal we, but also the individual person and this and this congregation as a whole. I was here a number of years ago, and I tell you what, we didn't go to work without we're looking for somebody to witness to. Hey, Gwen, <laughs> we didn't. I still remember calling on God on my way to night shift when I was a baby RN, praying in tongues the whole way. Saying, God, give me an opportunity to talk to somebody about you. I still remember those times when something did happen at work, and often it would, yeah, and, and I, because I was looking for it, I'd kind of move into those opportunities. And I, I have several stories of just opening up for me. And if anybody knows that anything about hospitals, being left alone with a patient for five minutes in privacy doesn't happen. But this, all of a sudden it would happen, between the intensive care unit, it would happen and God would make the way for me to be able to actually be part of the harvest. 
I wish I was as intent now when I'm on my way to work. Yeah, not so much. That's on me. But what about you? I found a quote that says this. It's easy to determine when something is aflame or on fire. It ignites other material. Any fire that does not spread will eventually go out. A church without evangelism is a contradiction in terms, just as a fire that does not burn is a contradiction. So if we are not spreading the gospel, can we actually call ourselves a church? Wow. And thing is, we are. Evangelism definitely happens from this house. Absolutely happens. Absolutely does in many different forms. So I'm not saying that. But I am just want to say, look, fire. We live in a bushfire world. We all know when fire takes hold, there ain't nothing stopping that. They can drop stuff retardant all they like from the skies, but nothing's stopping a bushfire that's moving on multiple fronts. We've seen that. We've seen the incredible devastation. Why not believe for a day when the fire of the Spirit of God and the power of the gospel is moving with such intensity that nothing is going to be able to stop it? But it's got to start somewhere. Just like a bushfire starts from one cigarette or one little arsonist or one whatever, one lightning strike, it's got to start somewhere and then it's got to have an opportunity to grow and to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It has to start. So we know all this, so why aren't we more consistently doing this? I know that there's plenty in this church who are, but I'm talking to all the rest of us, including me. And I believe that two of the biggest reasons can be found in the laws of planting and harvesting. The two things I want to talk about today is we don't always understand the weight, W-A-I-T, the waiting. The second is sowing and planting costs. In John chapter 4, Jesus said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's actually our job as well. Do you not say there are still four months until the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe for harvest. And already the reaper draws his wages and gathers a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice forever. What I got from this is that the time between this reaping and the sowing is uncertain. People... And we have to remember too is that this was spoken into an agricultural culture. So the time between the reaping and sowing is, is, is uncertain. These people kind of know around their crops what they're expecting. But the, the speaker here, Jesus, is saying, hey, you might think you know, but you actually don't. You think you've got it all worked out, but you really haven't. You think you understand the complete plan of God and the way God works. Well, no, you really don't. So how about you get out of your own head, remove your own ideas, open your eyes and have a look and actually see what I am doing. And God says the same thing to us. 
The time between reaping and sowing is uncertain. And even thinking about all different crops, there's a reason why we give children little tiny pea, sheets, pea shoots to seed, isn't there? It's because they take no time at all to germinate. And how much patience have kids got? You're like, none. Okay. <laughs> and yet how long does it take for one of those big, big trees to grow? So we understand already that different crops have different periods of time. We get it. But do we? The thing is, that time between sowing and reaping is not certain for us. It's God's business. But what I want to ask you is, when we, sow, when we plant something, do we believe, in the, do we have faith in the harvest? That's my question for us today. Whether we're in the waiting time, do we believe in the harvest? Do we have faith in the harvest? Do we have faith? Do we believe that one day that thing which is planted and watered will come to fruition, will grow, will bear fruit? Do we really believe it? The farmer has to believe it. The person who plants has to believe it. But do we? If we did really understand that the time between sowing and reaping is uncertain and can sometimes be what seems to us a long time, we all laugh about little kids, you know, planting stuff and then keep and digging them up. We've all got a, anybody who's ever had little kids or had anything to do with them, all got a story about that, haven't we? They plant, they pull them up, they lift them up, they want to look, it's not happening, it's not growing. We laugh about that because we know this thing needs some time and yet we neglect in our adult lives to move the same principle into our spiritual life. And we are like that little kid who's digging stuff up saying, well, what's happening? Nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Yeah, well, maybe we wait five minutes. Maybe we do. Because if we did, maybe we'd sow more. Newsflash, we all know this, but I'm going to make a point here. The grocery fairy isn't waving a magic wand for the fruit, the veggies and the meat, etc. to just appear overnight in Woolies or wherever you happen to be, is he? We know that. We know that nobody wanders through there and goes zap, 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 and there they appear out of nowhere. Well, duh, you say. But think about it. We get so used to instant, instant in our non-agricultural world. We get so used to stuff just being there that we can forget how long some of it really takes. And we forget many of these allegories and stories were told to an agricultural culture who knew exactly what was being talked about. If they didn't grow it, they didn't eat it. We can be, and we can be like these little kids playing with seeds. So my, my point is this. Stop thinking about the one or two times in recent history or wherever in your life that you've tried talking to somebody about Jesus and it didn't work. How many of us have a story when we've tried and got stonewalled or tried and got abused or tried and got asked a question we couldn't answer or tried and felt that we got bamboozled and they were cleverer than us or tried and got persecuted or tried and just got ignored or I don't know there's lots of versions of things not going great or tried and had the person get really defensive and angry with us so we do that and go I'm not good at that people don't respond well or whatever so 
what you're meaning is it didn't work out right in front of me, right this second, so nothing's happening. That's what you're saying, really. I, I'm not good at that, so I'm not going to set myself up for that type of failure again or that embarrassment, or that hurt, or that uncertainty, or whatever your adjective happens to be. Whatever it happens to be. You're not going to do it. People's spiritual journeys are not a Macca's drive through And frankly, they're kind of not our business, really. Shock. Other people's spiritual journey are not our business. It's between them. And between God and, and God, really not. Yes, it's our problem. We have to care, but where they're at in that journey, how, how do we know? We we really, really, really don't know. How do you on earth do you know what is happening in somebody's soul and mind? How do you know? Many years ago now, I have a brother. Name is Simon. Um, he is a couple of years younger than me, uh, but 30, over 30 years ago now, goodness me, um, he left New Zealand and came here to live with my aunt and uncle, Sarah and Stuart, uh, because his life was an absolute train wreck. And while he was here, he gloriously met Jesus and was totally transformed. I was still in New Zealand. I uh, wasn't living at home. Uh, I was 19 at the time, I think, when start, some of this started to happen, 19, 20 years old. Um, and then, but I had, didn't have much contact with my brother because his, his, his lifestyle and who he was before he left for Australia wasn't so great. He burned a few bridges, let's just put it that way. So we weren't particularly close. Anyway, I happened to be at my parents' one night um, for dinner and Simon rang. Because I hadn't talked to him for a while. So I got on the phone. So, hey, or brother, how are you going? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm good, good. He didn't say a lot. Then he says, so what's, what's new with you? I went, oh, oh, yeah, this and that. I've got a new boyfriend. And him on the other end of the phone was, oh, felicity. I manifested. <laughs> I just about tore his head off. Furious. I was furious. <laughs> uh, because this is my brother, I wasn't about to pull my punches or be particularly filtered or nice about it either. Um, about him telling me how to live my life. Ropeable. So Simon from his end, and I'm not suggesting you pass judgment on somebody's relationships, okay? This is my brother talking to me, not the random person in the street. Who knows that people's relationships, leave that one alone, okay? Just so that's not what we're talking about here. But this is my brother, so kind of gets a free pass on that one in some kind of a way. But so anyway, I was ropeable, and I, the conversation terminated. I was that mad with him, that mad with him. And if, um, from Simon's end of things, it would have looked like, oh, well, that was a dead loss. Nothing happens there. I'm on the other side of the Tasman. I'm still in Wellington. What he doesn't know is that, or didn't know, is that I could not get that stupid conversation and that comment out of my head for the next number of months. It was part of my spiritual journey. My response, yeah, not so great to be on the receiving end of it. Because you guys know I'm reasonably articulate because I have to stand up here and you know that I teach university students for a living. So if I'm going to let you have it, sometimes that can be fairly pointed. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have looked great. The point is, what he didn't know is that I could not get that wretched conversation out of my head. He'd planted a seed of something in my heart and soul that I couldn't dig out, no matter how hard I tried. I couldn't get rid of it. The response of the person who you sow into is not your job and it's not the point. If it don't work now, then why should I? Please, really, really think about it. There is a gap of indeterminate time between sowing and harvest. And sometimes we are blessed enough to be the one who harvests. And when we do, we usually find out that someone else has been sowing, maybe for years. They've been loving, they've been praying, they've been speaking. But for most of our encounters with people, that won't be the case. You might plant, you might water. Your role in that is actually not your business. Your job is to do the job that is in front of you right there, right then, and let God give the increase because that bits his business. So one of the points I'm making here is sometimes we don't because we get put off by the response to us that looks so bad and we've got no idea about the person's spiritual journey. And it's not our business. We're asked to do a job and leave the rest to God. Do what he asks. Make Jesus known. Trust the Spirit of God himself to break through on people's lives. We have to trust him. You know, I don't have really, I don't have a kind of really fancy story anymore. Because that scripture verse out of Acts 1.8 says, Go, um, when the Spirit of God has come upon you, go and, make, go and be witnesses. You know, to, throughout, you know, Judas, uh, Jerusalem, Judea and all, of, all through the lands and all of the rest of it. So near and far, basically, is what they're saying. It wasn't overnight, because obviously I'm standing here now, so something happened. There was actually years of sowing. Patty here? Yeah. I know some of you know this story, but for, year, for a long, long time, Patty and somebody called Sharon... Um, prayed for me every Tuesday morning. They'd get up early, get together and pray for a list of young women. They knew me because I was Sarah and Stuart's niece. They prayed for me. And I know this church prayed for me on Saturday nights at Saturday night prayer meetings. We used to have them regularly. You know how I knew? You know how I know this church prayed for me? It's because um, I was not interested in God. Thank you very much. I was having a really good time and I'd be in the middle of a party and it would be, I would be in the zone. I love to dance and communicate and all of those things. We're having a great time and then all of a sudden about, I don't know, you know, 9, 10, whatever, 11 o'clock, I'd suddenly be like, yeah, I think I'll go home. This is, I'm kind of over this. New Zealand's two to three hours ahead of Australia. So what's happening over here? Looking back, I genuinely believe that those times when all of a sudden, for no reason, when I'd suddenly be like, this was suddenly the, what was so fun was suddenly ashes, was because people over here were sowing. They were sowing. They were praying and calling upon God that God would move on the life of this young woman over in another country, Simon's sister. One day, 
So people were sowing in prayer and example and grace. And then one day, God butted in on the life of a pleasure-seeking, materialistic, vain young woman. That'd be me. I was not looking for God. I was having fun. And he completely butted in on my life. And he ruined me for what I'd once known. He ruined me. It happens, people. But you know what? It took years. My brother was here calling upon God for me for two years before I put in an appearance. It was two years. But for for people like Sarah and Stuart and others praying for me, it was eight years. Eight years when Gwen and some others first met me as a 13-year-old girl. Gwen's nodding. She's my sister, so much my sister, and almost my spiritual mother in some ways. Eight years. I was 21 years old. So for some, it was eight years of sowing and waiting and trusting and believing that because they were sowing in faith, that one day the harvest was going to come. Two years for my brother. And then one day, and that's the rest of the story that I won't go into now, God butted in and wrecked me for what I'd known. What I'm saying here is have faith. Have faith. Have faith in the harvest. Have faith in the spiritual law. Have faith that if we sow, we will reap. But it is God's business just how, just why, just when. Your job and my job is to keep sowing and to keep watering and to keep sowing and to keep watering. And there is nowhere there that says to stop because you haven't seen it come to fruition. But we do. We stop because we don't like the response. We're big sooks, really. Sooky la la. We're big sooks because we don't like it. And it makes us uncomfortable and it hurts. Push through. Push through. Because one day I believe that we'll have many, many, many people here telling stories about when the living God butted in on their lives and wrecked them and destroyed them for anything else other than the path that God was putting them upon. I left my country, I left my job, I left my boyfriend, the one that I was telling my brother about. We're talking two years down the track now, so that wasn't easy. I left my um, non-believing father, who didn't get it at all. My friends, who all thought I'd gone nuts. My boyfriend thought I was convinced I was leaving him for another man. Kind of was. You know how he meant. I left my job. I left the way I dressed. I left the things I enjoyed. I left everything because God wrecked me for anything other than what he had for me. That's my story. I wasn't looking for it and I didn't want it. But you know what? It doesn't matter. When the grace of God visits you, Things change. Keep sowing. I'm telling you that story to encourage you. It took years. Keep sowing. Keep watering and believe that God one day brings the harvest, but you have to believe that the harvest will be coming. We have to believe it. We're not great at delayed gratification. The other thing is we forget that we need to stretch. Isaiah 54 verse 1 says this, Shout for joy, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth in song and cry aloud. You who have never travailed or been in labour, because more are the children of the desolate women than of her who has no husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the side of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not hold back. 
lengthen your ropes, drive your stakes in deep, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess the nations and inhabit the desolate cities. Oh God, let that be. Lord, let that be. Let that be that our descendants, our spiritual descendants, start to displace and move into the desolate cities like a wildfire. Now, that was obviously initially aimed at like the children of Israel. The, the, children, the desolate children they're talking about were those who were in captivity, you know, I from Babylon. But let's own it. Let's claim it. Say, God, we're going to have that. We're going to have it. But then there's this bit in here, though about the necessity for us to stretch. It's not by accident that the allegory there is is of women who are labouring with childbirth. For those of you, and there's at least half of you obviously, who have never had that that pleasure, um, it's called travail and labour for a reason. Um, It is not comfortable. It hurts. And it's not comfortable for just about the entire nine months that you're waiting for it to happen. Well, it wasn't for me anyway. There's lots of things around it. But there's preparation and there's stretch of so many things. But... It is impossible for that child to be birthed, for that thing to be, for whatever it is to be birthed, unless that preparation has actually happened. So sometimes the other reason I believe that we are not willing to sow so that we can't reap, as I believe is God's real purpose, is because we have not been particularly inclined to always to pay the cost. There is a psalm that says this, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the captives of Zion, we were like dreamers. We were like those who dreamed, like we were dreaming. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. Restore our captives, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing a trail of seed, will surely return with, with surely return with shouts of joy, carrying sheaves of grain. I've shared this before, so forgive me for those of you who remembered. It was a while ago, quite a while ago. But for me, I believe this is now the best. Um, illustration of this particular principle. It's fairly long, so bear with it. It's told of the story of a, of, it's the, told from the point of view of a missionary who was stationed um, in Africa. And he's 14 years in West Africa with a mission agency. And his story points out the price that some people pay to sow the gospel, the seed of the gospel on hard soil. And he was perplexed by that psalm. What do you mean by sowing in tears? and then reaping in joy, until he was out of the Sahel, which is a vast stretch of savanna or desert, um, which is just under the Sahara Desert geographically. And all of the moisture there comes in a four-month period. So we think we deal with drought. They never get rain anywhere except May, June, July, and August. So after that, there's not a drop of rain falls for eight months. 
There's another whole sermon in there about how the fact that sometimes we're living through the period of time when there ain't a drop of rain falling. Not for today. So the ground cracks from dryness. So do hands and feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet up in the air. And it comes slowly drifting across West Africa. It gets in your mouth. It gets in your watch. It stops it. Um, and, of course, the year's food must be growing in those four months. And they grow things like sorghum which is a, you know, and milo, which are fast-reaping and fast-growing crops. So through October and November, they are really beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvesters come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day. They grind up the sorghum and make it like to a paste if and they put, roll it into balls, dip, dip it in a sauce and eat it. So it's very heavy, very dense, so it means that their children have full tummies and sleep well at night, like a mush. December comes and the granaries, so the storage starts to, to, starts to recede. Many families now cut out the morning meal. Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. My kids think their throats are cut if they've got to go more than two and a half hours without finding something to eat. April is the month that haunts my memory, this guy says. In it, in the, meal strength, the, the meal strength's even more during March and children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April is the month that haunts my memory, he says. In it, you hear the babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel, which is like a thin, watery thing. Then, inevitably, it happens. So now we're, what we're dealing with is families whose children are getting sick, starving, maybe dying from illness and disease associated with malnutrition, weak. One of my kids eats a lot because he runs 20Ks every second day. One of the others eats a lot because she swims 20Ks a week. So, so we're not talking about kids not able to sustain intense activity. We're talking about children who aren't getting enough food to, to, to sustain basic bodily and organ function. So then inevitably it happens. A six- or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, Daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall, and I put my hand in it, and Dad, there's grain. Dad, there's grain. Give it to Mom. We can make flour, and tonight our tummies can sleep. And the father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains and then we must use it. So the rains finally arrived in May. And when they do, the young boy, the hungry kid, watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does this incredibly unreasonable thing. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes to the field and with tears streaming down his face, he takes this precious seed and throws it away. He scatters in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. If he didn't believe that the fruit of sowing that seed was going to be far greater than the seed itself, he would never do it. So for us, where is, our, where is our faith at? 
that little thing we do, we get so put off by the response that we forget that at the end of it, there's a harvest. The little thing we do, the little thing we say, the little kid we talk to at school for our chaplains, the little kindness we give to the checkout girl when the person before was just horrible, the little encouragement we give to the struggling mum in the shops, the prayer that we pray for somebody who we don't really know but have just dumped their burden on us and doesn't that happen? The person we say, do you know about Jesus? The little thing we say, and it seems like so nothing sometimes and so little, we have to believe in the harvest. The act of sowing for this person hurts so much that he cries. So my point that I'm making here is tears. Those who sow in tears reap in joy. Tears denote two things, pain but also effort and exertion. Pain. Let's not sugarcoat it. There is cost involved with sowing and watering and preaching the gospel. There is cost. It can be to our ego, it can be to our social life, it can be to our friendship group, it can be to our relationships, it can be to so many things. But more often, it's cost. It can be forcing us out of our comfort zone. That ain't comfortable. It can be our comfort and our energy and our time and our money. There is cost There is cost. This was written for people who understood that cost. And they also understood that if this didn't happen, there wasn't going to be a harvest. So for me, it's are we willing to pay the price? And that can mean so many different things. If you don't know what to say, if you're feeling nervous, how about you find out? Jed mentioned our little story. He said, you know, what's our story? Well, what's yours? Work it out. Write it down. How do you know that Jesus is real? Sometimes we don't just because we don't bother. We don't work out that we actually do have something to say because Jesus has changed us. What's he done for you? Actually quantify it. Work it out and write it down if necessary. I'm talking about cost here, about stretching here, about being bothered to put something into action for you to pay the price to do some sowing. It's not just going to drop out of heaven. It's just not. How did he make himself known to you? If you want to go deeper, attend Alpha yourself. I'm giving us some solutions here. If you don't know what to say or how to share, well, do something about it. Don't hide behind it anymore. Don't say, I don't know what to say. I'm scared they'll ask me, we'll fix it. Care enough and love enough to be stretched. Attend Alpha. Do a Bible study. Find out. Buy a book. Ask somebody. Attend Alpha. Attend Bridge to Life. The Life Keys course. Incredible with the foundational truths of the gospel. Work out what the truth of the gospel actually is. Learn an answer if the people around you are always wanting to focus on current events or controversial issues. Don't let it be a reason to not talk about Jesus. We all know the stuff that gets thrown thrown us out. Learn an answer, a gracious answer. Or here's a radical thought. 
go to God and say, God, help me, because he knows your people and who you're talking to and what they're after. Drop into my heart a gracious response if anybody asks me about X, Y, or Z. How about you go to God and trust that he knows their hearts and their minds and that he will, by the Spirit of God, give you something to do. How many of you, and I know some of you do, but how many for the rest of us can honestly say that we do that? Or do we let the fear of having the controversial, and I don't need to draw you any pictures about what some of those things are, being thrown in our face so we don't sow and we don't water because of fear, because we're worried, I don't know what to say. Well, you know what? Find out. Or tune in to the Spirit of God who will tell us and will and trust and trust that He knows this person's journey and before he, and He will give you something to say. He, he will. If you, if you, and we all know the different circumstances and things that people throw at you all the time. Prepare yourself. Stretch your habitation. Stretch your habitation. Stretch out your tent. Strengthen your stakes. That's about, you know, build some foundation. Put some strength into it so that you have got room for the harvest. Loving people. You know what? If you don't care, you are not going to do this. Loving people. Uh, many years ago, I asked because I worked for the Department of Social Security in a previous life, so that was interesting. But many, many years ago, I remember asking Gwen, Gwen, how does, and yeah, that was challenging at times, Gwen, how, do you, how does a baby Christian learn to love the unlovely? And I can't remember her exact response, but I've, I've never forgotten the question. And that's easy. We actually can't. But God, who is love, can and does. And the only way that we can love the unlovely, the difficult, the obstreperous, the argumentative, the controversial, the malicious, the uh, different to us, let's, let, let's, do, let's say that, the different to us, the only way we can love them, really, the only way, is be by actually receiving the Father's heart for these people. So if you know yourself that you don't really care, hmm, that people's suffering doesn't really get you, that you don't want to get out of your own way to make an effort to know what to say, to, get on, to, to call out to God for opportunities, then you might need some heart surgery. You just might. If you don't care, be brave. Get on your knees and ask God, or, don't, or if you know somehow you don't care like you ought to, let's put it that way, and ask God to give you his care, his heart. And you know what? Prepare for your heart to break. It's a brave prayer. It is not an easy prayer to pray and it's not an easy prayer to receive. But it fuels us. It moves us. It moves us like nothing else can is getting God's heart and God's perspective on the broken, annoying people around about you who need to know the love of God, who wants to love them, redeem them, keep them for himself, save them from hell, have them forever for eternity. Ask God to break your heart. Ask him, I dare you to. I challenge you to. If you know, and you'll know, you will know, if you know that you don't care enough, do something about it. Prepare for your heart to break. Do we believe in the harvest enough to sow for it? 
Or are we waiting for it to drop from the sky like manna? You know the story of the children of Israel in the, in the desert and the manna came from heaven. The thing is about manna, yes, it was all good and yes, it was miraculous, but it was just enough, just enough for the day. And if there was too much, it rotted. It didn't keep. It is categorically different to sowing and reaping or harvesting and planting. It's categorically different. It denotes, they had manna because they were on the move. It denotes staying put. You can't sow and then leave for another town five minutes later. It means putting down roots. It means commitment to that patch of ground. I'm not talking about moving house. You know, that's not what I mean. But it means actual commitment to the place where you are. Paying that price, being committed. It means a commitment to the patch of ground where you are. There's a story in 2 Samuel about two of David's mighty men. Two of Daniel's mighty men who were in the middle of this ground. Their Philistines were coming. The first one of them fought so hard that the sword, his fingers clamped or cleaved around the sword and he couldn't get his hand off the sword. The next guy was in the, stood in the middle of a lentil patch, a boring, uninspiring, boring old vegetable patch, stood in the middle of it and kept fighting until the enemy was destroyed. Are you going to stand in the middle of your patch of ground and fight for it? It takes commitment. It means effort. It takes cost. It means waiting. It means watering. It means faith. It means cleaning fish. It means gathering the harvest. It means protecting the crop. Are we willing to pay the price? Or are we just sort of wandering around aimlessly, expecting and waiting for manna to drop from heaven? It's not what he says. He tells us to sow and to wait and to believe that there's going to be a harvest. Don't give up. He says, look, sing, O barren. It's a song of promise. Sing, O barren. It's a song of promise. Do you trust the promise? Do I trust in the promise? But there's the command to stretch out the tent, to put effort, to prepare, to sow. Do we trust in the harvest that it will come in God's good time? His, not ours. Don't give up if your, young, if your loved one is still not with God or back with God. Don't give up. Just wait. Lift up your eyes and see where it's at from God's perspective and keep sowing and keep watering and keep trusting that God is waiting and God is moving and God is going to do something. So in the end, I'm going to leave it there. We are ordered to do this. That is a no-brainer. We don't, but we forget sometimes that the increase is God's, the growth is God's, people's spiritual journey is God's own business. But if we want to be a church on fire, we have to do this. I believe that firmly. It's not lots and lo- it is lots and lots of prayer, obviously. That's essential. But unless we are out there witnessing, making Jesus known, speaking the gospel, then that fire that can't be stopped isn't going to happen. We have to pay the price. Wait, have faith, sow, water, reap. Sow, water, wait. Sow, water, wait. But let's keep doing it and believe, absolutely believe, that our increase 
is actually going to fill the cities of the desolate. It's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. But it's going to take a price from us. Are you going to pay it?